So we just wanted to record a little quick intro to this episode, which was, in fact, the first Patreon bonus episode we recorded called our Extended Handshake episode. It's basically uh, the Handshake Part 2, more or less, yes. from our initial episode. Yeah, and we kept fought, we just fell a little behind this week. We were in New York for a few days. I got a new job, and everything was a little crazy, so we thought this is kind of the mid-season. We're almost at the mid-season. We, last time we put out a bonus, let's do this. So we're not going to be putting out uh, our other Patreon material very often, if at all, but this one was such a fun one, we kind of wanted to share it with everyone and give you a taste of what we do sometimes. This is longer than most of the Patreon ones of course. Yeah, it's a little more polished. Usually we don't do a lot of editing. So this is a proper episode, but we hope you enjoy it. And maybe it makes you think uh, you are missing out on something if you uh, are interested in throwing some some change our way. But no big deal if not. Enjoy the episode. We had a great time recording it and talking about more favorites. And for the actual Patreon people, don't worry, we're recording something, a little something new for you guys. Always. Okay, enjoy the episode. Patreon subscribers. You special few. We love you very much, and uh, this is our first bonus uh, episode out of the gate. Yeah, this is us uh, returning to our origin roots. Uh, We welcomed people, listeners, for the very first time on our normal show uh, with a handshake, and we are going to continue that concept, but only for the Patreon only. Uh, Folks who have been supporting us, I think... uh, at last count, we we're around the 73 patrons, which was absolutely super. Yeah, I'm stunned. I'm blown away by the support uh, and truly touched. A uh, couple housekeeping things before we jump in. Uh, we uh, are. This is going to be a slightly, you know, slightly longer than what these will normally be when we start doing these more frequently. Uh, and we won't. We're aiming at not usually editing them. We're just not going to treat it exactly like the other show. Usually, it'll just be kind of off the cuff, conversational. But because this was the continuation of our original handshake, we did feel like we were going to have to get some clips in here and, you know, uh, give it a little more, slightly a little more structure than what some of the ones in the future will be like, I'd say. Yeah. So enjoy this, um, polished bonus. Episode. Yeah, yeah. I'll still be rough as I, uh, <laughs> as it, uh, also I'm going to cut you guys in on something. I haven't even told Brian this prepare for some excitement. Uh, I'm also going to tell you guys first, just so no one else knows, uh, We, me and Brian are also going to be releasing a new summer episode that will be available to everyone. Uh, we haven't decided when, but it's going to be soonish, but it will be before we the show returns officially, and it will all be about the Code Red label. Yes, indeed. So I just decided in the spur of this moment, Brian, to drop that so these people feel even more special. They know what their dollars are buying them. Yes, they're getting exclusive uh, exclusive Info. news. Yeah, we're not going to tell those other scumbags. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> Um, but yes, no, we're uh, we're excited. I, you know, I'm I, I'm on summer summer break as of tonight. I'm 
couple drinks in, Hawaiian shirt threaded. Nice. Uh, I'm. Uh, this is the kind of the perfect vibe to be co- returning to. Say, you know, because we we did this first season, you know, twelve episodes, which you know effectively is three months. Uh, you know, without really thinking about what we're creating, we just kind of knuckled down and made it. And now we get you know a little bit of time to reflect. We've re- already started taping season two, and uh, I don't know. This will be fun. Yeah, it's been neat to sort of have a chance to sketch things out beforehand and sort of go, maybe we should put that there and this here. And, and we did a, some of that on the fly with season one, but I'm kind of excited for season two to see how it flows, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, I think we both have curator minds, you know? So we it's not enough to just do a show every week uh, like I do with Shockwaves where it's just, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. We show up, we do a show, it's fine. Uh, but I think both of us have that tendency to want to, you know, organize or uh, move things around or present films in a specific light um and that's i think the thing i kind of enjoy most about uh doing this um there's some you know when we're talking about handshakes some of these i might have even mentioned in our first episode i i haven't gone back to re-listen to that one so i might have mentioned them in passing at the end or something uh there's a few biggies you know that i'm not going into because some some we've also mentioned i mean after doing 12 episodes and naming that many movies there's a lot of my favorite movies existed in some of those conversations uh, i would say things like uh, big you know big big lebowski wasn't mentioned but big lebowski vertigo movies like that that you know we probably are discussing in some part but i feel like the difference with the handshake is again these are kind of films the word favorite sure but it's also like there's something about them that you carry with you whatever they are whether they're great movies or b movies there's something that maybe defines you a little uh, at least in your mind yeah, definitely. I mean, for me, I'll I'll get into it, but a lot of these have at least I want to say three of the five have very personal connections, and they're all personal. They're all sort of intertwined with me, and I've sort of sat with them for many years. None of these movies are movies that I've seen for the first time recently. I mean, these are a lot of them have have been um, part of my lexicon for decades. So there's a lot of me in in these, just as I'm sure you have the same thing. Yeah, definitely, and then definitely it's like where you saw saw a film also sometimes you know carries a greater weight. There's and there's a couple that are just like fun movies that I return to, uh, you know, that I think about a lot. Um, and there's been other movies. I you even posted a photo of Mr. Mom because uh, the new Blu-ray is coming out soon. And that's a movie that could totally have ended up in a list like this. It's one of those weird movies that I think about a lot. I think about it more than I watch it. <laughs> you know, I haven't seen it in a long time, but I think about moments from it and relate it to my life a lot more than I do. So, you know, there's 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 so many movies. I and mean, we could do part three and four of this forever. But uh, it's fun. It's fun to limit ourselves, give us a few titles, uh, and, you know, throw some uh, some more movies around. Yeah, and maybe these are stuff that you've already seen. Uh, maybe maybe it's something you haven't checked out yet. Obviously, these all have our highest recommendation if you haven't seen any of them yet. Mm-hmm. So, Oh, yeah, that? for sure. Yeah, uh, so let's just jump in. Um, yeah, let's jump in. We'll do our, do our five and see what, see what occurs. All right, sir. Uh, I'm going to be a gentleman and let you go first. Okay, number five. 
Uh, and the other funny thing is I'd say probably 80% of both our lists will end up being movies that both of us probably like. I could just I just have a, a strong vibe. And there might be a couple on either of them that might throw us, but uh, just given our conversations of late. Uh, my number five is I was debating between – there's another movie that could have easily made this, but it's a movie starring Warren Oates that I am gonna, I've been saving – all season, 12 episodes, into a new season because I know we're going to do an episode on Twilight Time. And I don't care if that's being obvious. It's one of my favorite movies. I'm saving it for that episode. So my number five is a different Warren Oates movie. And it is just – it's it's a thriller. And to a lot of people, it would be just kind of like a general 70s thriller. I love this movie so much. And that is Race with the Devil. Race with the Devil. We saw somebody murdered. What? Some sort of ritual across the river. A girl got stabbed. They're chasing us. Starring Peter Fonda and Warren Oates. There was nowhere they could hide. Alice, look what was stuck to the back window. It's some kind of message. Witchcraft. Witches? <laughs> Frank, they're trying to screw with our brains. So what are we going to do about it? Nice. Director Jack Starrett, 1975. It's Peter Fonda and Warren Oates versus R.G. Armstrong and a bunch of Satanists. I mean... This movie, I was lucky enough to get to re-see it. It's always been one of those movies that, weirdly enough, in the back of my brain, I go, I think that's one of my favorite movies. But he can't really articulate it because it's not—it's definitely not a deep movie on any on any level. It is a very simple setup of a, basically a buddy movie. If we were doing a buddy road movies, this would be one of those one of my favorites. It's it's uh, two, Peter Fonda and Warnotes are both uh, both sell and design uh, like motocross racing bikes. Uh, and they're, you know, kind of th- maybe somewhat thrill seekers, but they're also, you know, middle aged guys. Uh, and they basically get, are get jumping in an RV with their uh, significant others and uh, going on a road trip, uh, taking their kind of summer break uh, together. And along the way, I think it's from Texas to Colorado. And they, uh, they, they, they haul up at this one one quiet little rest stop where there's no one else around and Oates and Fonda just get shit faced. It's great. I just love, I, I love movies, especially with these kind of combinations of actors, these guys who just, it feels so genuine, the connection, uh, from that time period. Uh, and they're just, they're kind of getting, you know, blind drunk and the, the, uh, their ladies are inside, uh, kind of resting up and across the way, across this little stream, they see, this kind of satanic ritual, which they don't really realize just how serious it is initially. It's guys in black coats until, you know, someone's actually killed or at least kind of jumping in again to the blow up, uh, blow up and blow out and uh, deep breath. You know, all, all these movies, which kind of have, you know, witness uh, storylines uh, and they, they basically uh, pack up and start getting terrorized by these on the road. It's like a road movie, you know, terrorizing film. So it's I can't really think of anything it's like. You know, it's one of those weird movies that it's it's almost comical in its description, but it's so much fun, and the characters are so great, and all the actors are great, uh, and there's just this kind of slow encroaching menace that happens everywhere they stop along the way, and you get the feeling like you're kind of stuck in one of these situations where everyone's in on it, which, you know, it's just the best. But what I was going to say is I hadn't seen it a long time, even though it's always been on my mind, and I sat down for uh, the the New Beverly have their all-nighters uh, once a year uh, for Halloween, and uh, this year it played, like, second film in pristine 
transfer, you know, archival print. And I was just like, oh, my God. It was like one of the happiest moments I've had in a long time. And, <laughs> and, and it held up more than I could ever imagine. I mean, it, I don't think it's on Blu-ray. I think it's still. No, it is. I mean, Oh, it's on Blu right now. Yeah. Um, well, and that makes sense because this print was so good, it probably came from this. Uh, it's, I think it's a double with Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry. Oh, which is okay. Also great. That's right. But the yeah. different road movie altogether, but also yeah. Peter Fonda. Another Fonda. So this, yeah, this is definitely like I don't want to say the trashiest movie, but the most kind of the most the movie on my list that would be easiest to dismiss. But if you're a certain way, and I know a lot of my friends feel this way too, they see this movie and they're like, oh, there's, if you love those actors already, this movie just somehow gets completely elevated by the chemistry in this film. And I just, I love it. No, I'm 100% with you. You're, you're right on the mark as far as us both liking a movie right out of the gate. Um, yeah, there's, there's a thing, I have, a problem I have with Satanist movies because I often find groups of Satanists to be not particularly th- scary or threatening for some reason right it can seem a little silly like a bunch yeah. of people with black coats on yeah for yeah sure. just it just feels like i don't know you could run away or whatever but but the sense of dread and paranoia that because i feel like i don't know if they're in the south when the, you said it was i can't remember where it's going but yeah it, i think they're texas to colorado yeah so, so it yeah, feels like it feels like the south and to be honest um i i i, I have a sense in movies at least that when characters are in the South, I, 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 it doesn't feel safe in a certain context, and and nothing well, against especially if they're from yeah from elsewhere yeah it always yeah. feels that yeah yeah it just it there's a sense of um, characters being unwelcome you know in certain smaller communities in the South in movies and I do, I mean no offense to any of our Southern based listeners but it's just more like a movie thing and this is one of those movies that actually sort of conveys the a proper sense of dread and 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 goes into like horror territory in a really cool way that it it genuinely creeps me out when I watch it but it's also like an action movie and like you say it's just a great it's like a road movie it's got all these things going and on and it has an ending that's pretty pretty stunning yeah. and watching it this time I'm not going to ruin it for anyone because uh, it's a great ending it's it's it, it's very much of that era where movies ended like this but there's also a part of me that goes man I would pay good money to see another 20 minutes right now <laughs> like yeah. get out of the situation uh, because that would also be because you kind of you know you get into the movie so much but uh, R.G. Armstrong is also really great this is like one of the most I think he's part of the reason the Satanists come off as so convincing yeah uh, and and speaking of the South you know versus the North kind of mentality I mean Peter Fonda is California to me like he literally represents California like even when you think about escape from LA you know that surfer character that <laughs> to me is the most Peter Fonda human whereas Warren Oates you know is Kentucky you know so he does have that uh, that that southern side to him too so there's an interesting uh, kind of thing playing there but but the way they there's so many just fun set pieces in this thing too so if you haven't seen this one I would feel this is probably one of the few on my list that some people won't have seen it's, it's gonna you know you're gonna have fun no matter what yeah, I think that's a Shout Factory double feature Blu-ray. Um, definitely worth picking up. In my yeah, mind. I knew it was a DVD. I, I knew those two were together on a DVD. I didn't realize it was also blue. Yeah, it's great. Um, so my five, I know we've talked about it a little bit, but I don't think we've actually picked it for anything yet. Um, and I may have even told the story I'm going to tell here in a second, but uh, it's Miracle Mile. It was one of those strange nights... Finally meet the right girl and you blow it. That could ruin your whole day. In a big way. Um, 
me and you have talked about this before because this one was one I've told you before as well is also basically a, almost a handshake for me too. Yeah. Uh, because I I started at the end of a twenty four hour movie marathon and it was the morning movie played last. So when you stepped outside. Oh, the wow. light was just coming out and it kind of blew me away. And that's, that's when I knew nothing about it back then. Like That's like the perfect, away. you can't ask for a better time to watch that <laughs> you, movie. You literally can't end a festival. If you end a 24-hour screening with Miracle Mile, you have just like knocked it out of the park. That's fucking great. Um, yeah, so this one's always, I mean, it's been a big deal to me for a long time, but um, it became an even bigger deal when it was either the first or second movie that I watched with my wife when we were dating. Um <laughs> you know, many years ago and, you know, she loved it when, you know, I was showing it to her for the first time and she liked it very much and it just became a very special movie to us and to the point where when we were looking at venues to be married, we actually looked at Johnny's Coffee Shop, which is <laughs> an active um, filming location now on Wilshire Boulevard. It's not, it's, it's, it's one of the, it just so I set up the story. I mean, the story is basically that, Anthony Edwards plays a trombone player who meets the girl of his dreams. She happens to work at Johnny's Coffee Shop, which is this famous coffee shop, which has been in a lot of movies on Wilshire Boulevard in L.A. And um, on the same night, uh, he intercepts a phone call from a kid working in a missile silo who's basically trying to call his dad to tell him that the the missiles have been launched and basically we're at nuclear war and and shit's going to blow up, you know? So anyway, uh, we were really into the movie. We were really into Johnny's. We looked into it as a venue and got a price on it and everything. It just didn't end up working out, but we were this close to actually. How is it expensive? I always, I think I want to say it was like 4,000 for a day or something like that. Oh, for, I mean, for a wedding, that's not, no, it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been that bad, but it, but there were just some other logistical things and it wasn't (laughs) quite as easy because it, it's owned by like the 99 cent store. So it's this weird thing. That's it's wedding planning stuff. That's not interesting, but, but regardless, that's how much the movie meant to us or means to us. Um, but yeah, it's just a great, almost like twilight zone episode of a movie, you know? Um, I just, I I don't know. It's got an an awesome tangerine dream score, which ties it to some of my other favorites, like three o'clock high, and Sorcerer and... Oh, yeah. I mean, and Sorcerer almost made this list for me. I mean, it would make this list. It just felt too obvious almost to me, but... Yeah, almost I, made mine too. Miracle Mile, what's so interesting about that movie is that they just don't really make movies that much that go somewhere. I'm talking about a movie that, like, starts in one place, goes somewhere else in the middle, and then ends in such a ballsy, huge fucking just cinematic way that you're like whoa this is like a it suddenly feels like a big movie the, like the last act of this movie feels just haunting and big and actiony uh and bleak uh whereas in the middle it's like this romance you know yeah. and you're watching this great story unfold between these two characters it feels almost very 90s in that sense in the middle and then the start is like a twilight zone so and not in a way that they feel disparate but in a way that movies just don't really give you all of that anymore. I feel like they give you one of those things, and the good ones do one of those things well. Yeah, no, this it, film really delivers. Yeah, it totally does, and and it's funny because it has an aspect of like, is this for real or is it not? Which is hanging over the whole thing. Um, but but yeah, there's something about as I've watched as many movies as we have over the years, the ones that have interesting endings, the ones that like you say have a bold ending. Um, tend to stick out because endings 
I think are where movies can most often be conventional. And I think more and more nowadays when we're, we've got bigger, huge budget tentpole movies, those movies can't do anything really adventurous with their endings. They have to be, you know, pretty on the mark, pretty predictable. Um, and they all have denouements. They all have another scene after yeah. the movie would end and hard cut to black like this one does in a very hard way. Mm-hmm. Uh, most movies would then have another scene to show you to make you feel a little more comfortable about the world or a little. And, and I just totally have a problem with that. It, it, there will be blood or something is different. That's a, that's a vital part of the story. It's like an extra little concluding chapter, but most movies do not need it. And it really, yeah, it really kind of takes away from the power of how, how to leave an audience shaken or something. Yeah, I'm with you. And I just, I think few movies get really stick the landing with an ending. Um, even the ones I love, Sometimes I'm like, oh, but it's still pretty conventional. And um, endings are tough. Endi- endings are really the t- one of the toughest things to get right. And so when you have a movie that, that goes for it, that sticks out. And I know like you're a fan of this movie. I know a lot of people are fans of Miracle Mile. It's a, it's a cult favorite. And I think that is part of the reason it is because of the way it goes. Yeah, it's funny. I almost it's if I'd known you had put Miracle Mile, I would have definitely added this movie I was eyeing and it just missed out, which is The Quiet Earth. Uh, It's it's because it's, you know, I kind of wanted to fit a New Zealand film onto my list. But at the last second, I was just like, yeah, I won't put it on this one. It'll come up at some point. But it's a tremendous movie. It's not as good as Miracle Mile's special because of the I think it's the warmth of the characters. And their relationship that is truly like special and it really hooks you. Uh, Quiet Earth is more just like, wow, great filmmaking, uh, great setup. And that's kind of a similar kind of end of the world type of uh, idea. But I won't ruin that one yet. I'll hold it back for sci-fi. No, that's a great, great movie. I love that one, too. You're right. It's not as good as Miracle Mile, but it is great. And it's it's among a handful of movies like these that end up being movies that really stick with me personally. So, and I'd say um, Miracle Mile has my absolutely my number one uh, gay helicopter pilot of all time, <laughs> like literally number one. I know there's a lot to choose from. He is my number one. He uh, yeah. is he is one of the greatest characters, and just uh, he's from X Files as the bad guy. You'd remember him, but in this, he's so much fun. He's working out in the gym, and that's such a great scene, man. So good. It, it's a it's such a. I, I bought the. Uh, Miracle Mile Blue not long ago and I was really concerned I've got to admit I was, when I put it on I was like is this just gonna you know be one of those movies that does not hold up to that experience you had watching it in the theaters and it was everything you know I wanted it to be it just completely stuck the landing for me and I think there's probably people out there who will find it cheesy or something yeah but it, you know it could easily be I mean it is from 1988 and there's sometimes some things about there's there's some things yeah, there's in it that things, I could see but... people think were cheesy, but I don't know. But I in go... the same way, like Night of the Comet and other great yeah. movies from that time period are are great movies, and of course they've got things that date them. But you know, the kind of people listening to this, if you paid your, <laughs> we don't have to really worry about that. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Any, anyone who's paid for this has probably seen everything we're going to talk about anyway. I, but yeah, that's un- that's <laughs> probably true. I should add that I I love the Kino Lorber Blu-ray, but I think there's also a German Blu-ray that's either just come out or coming out that has a few more extra features, including some short films by Steve DiGiorna, the director, that weren't on the mirror, the um, Kino Lorber disc, and so I might have to pick that up as well because um, those short films sound really interesting to me. But that's, that's just for... Sly Germans. Yes, that's for, for the hardcore Miracle Mile fans, just so you know. 
I would say pretty hardcore if you're shopping in Germany. Indeed. Uh, um, my number four is uh, my art house edition, and I'm going to be honest with you. I have been having uh, guilt ever since I abandoned Goddard during our Josh Olson <laughs> interview or episode where Josh uh, kind of savaged Goddard and he had a throwaway comment like, no, well, you won't have any Goddard fans or something. And I and I bit my tongue. And this is what celebrity will do to you. I'm going to admit my <laughs> failing. Sometimes you're around some hotshot screenwriter and their beautiful pad with their great choices in film taste. <laughs> and they'll say something demeaning about a filmmaker who means a lot to you, who in fact is <laughs> literally, I'll take a photo. I have a photo of him holding up his film, wearing his sunglasses with a cigarette above where we are podcasting this very second. Uh, and I let it go because we're in the moment talking about crime films. But then I think it was a couple weeks later and I thought to myself, wait a minute, I'm that guy. <laughs> I'm that Goddard friend. And so Goddard's work at a certain point in my life meant a lot to me. I am not someone who right now is necessarily watching uh, much of his film, but a big part of that is because I watched most of it, um, you know, 21 22 um and i think some of his films i could pick up and watch now and they're always going to retain the kind of joy it's it's a funny thing to say joy and fun when talking about goddard because i think what's happened in the last 20 years is he's intellectualized everything so much in his films that they're more he's kind of better known right now as an essayist you know in this last which isn't fun you know there's some good movies i've seen some good later goddard but they're not at all fun they're they're interesting at best what did you think of goodbye to language by the way yeah, interesting again you know like okay. they, they, I, I sit through them when in a theater i can't watch those those things at home anymore like i have to be in a theater at a film festival um i think the best last one was the something something love um it was maybe 10 years now uh, actually i like goodbye to language i watched it by myself on 3d blu-ray and in 3d oh, um, cool. it was it was an oddly transfixing and immersive experience for me and uh, I should say I'm a Godard fan too, and I probably should have piped up in that moment with Josh. But to be honest, he's a he's a divisive filmmaker, and I feel like there are a lot of film fans that are not into him or that have a hatred for him. And I just I don't see a point in trying. Well, to if you, if convert. they have hatred, they haven't seen the right stuff. I mean, yeah. that's what I'm kind of getting at. Is there or annoyance or it. yeah, whatever. But but I'm I, you know I feel bad too about not voicing up. But part of me is like you know that's how he feels about it. Fine. But he's a big deal to me, too, I should say. And I'm sorry, I'm waiting to hear what your pick is, actually. Yeah, well, like, I have a couple. I have, I have two that mean a lot to me. Um, but one, uh, when I ran Jump Cut, we had a, a whole wall, basically, a giant French. Those big French posters are, uh, you know, maybe they're like three or four times the size of a, I guess they're like three sheets, uh, of Vivre Savie on our wall, uh, My Life to Live with Anna Karenna. It's that and Pierrot Lafoe both mean a lot to me. Um, I also have a weekend poster in my in one a different room in my house. I, you know, these movies mean a lot. Weekends a lot more, you know, intellectualized again. But Viva Savie, which is by choice, uh, at the end is, I mean, I think it's his best movie. I think it's uh, this very focused. It's a woman's life in quote marks in chapters. I think there's twelve chapters. Uh, each one starts with this beautiful piece of music by Michel Legrand who is you know, one of his long-term uh, composers and just created the best work. But Anna Karina is 
you know, if somebody said, who do you think was the best screen presence? She's definitely one of my like three, uh, you know, right up the, you know, Jean Tierney is maybe my number one and we'll get to her down at a future episode. Uh, but Anna Karina has an incredible, uh, Joe de V, I guess it is like this, this life just emanating from her and probably because she wasn't an actress. She's, you know, she became an actress, but I think she seems more like a discovery, you know, a, ta- a human who, found a way to put herself into the frame uh, for their work together, their collaboration. And, you know, they became lovers and married as well, of course. But um, there's, I, I love the way it looks. It's in black and white. The opening credits are incredible. They like use these uh, brilliant, like side shots of the back of her head, the side of her face, all with this haunting music. And then it's just a very, very simple story of a girl who, uh, who works, who wants to be an actress. She works in a record store. There's some great scenes in the record store. Uh, and each one's, a very simple kind of chapter focus chapter and she slips into prostitution and so it's really about prostitution and her life in that way but there's a in in paris but there's a a scene that i've never forgotten since when i saw it and 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 how i saw this movie will also uh plays a pretty relevant part in this and i'll tell that in a second um but there's a scene where she is in a movie theater watching one of my other favorite movies of all time. If, if I was to do a top 10 movies of all time, Carl uh, Dreyer's Joan of Arc is absolutely in it. It's not really a handshake film because I think that's a different kind of thing, but I think it's one of the best movies of all time. And there's a scene where uh, it's just, you know, a quiet scene where she's watching this movie alone in a dark theater in black and white, and she's watching this black and white haunting performance of a woman you know being you know burnt burnt at the stake basically uh for having heard god and and them not believing her and being a heretic and and there's just some beautiful connection between not just the history of two women but but the idea of two french you know these these uh, actresses being connected from the two screens that you're watching and you also get the feeling that there's something else going on which is probably Godard showing this movie to Anna Karina the actress for the first time in this moment and that she is really reacting to the depth of this beautiful incredibly intense emotional scene so there's all these like strange layers to this one very simple scene that a lot of people could just watch and go oh yeah that's a cool scene there's something about it that completely got me in the moment of seeing it and i happened to see this i went um when i was 21 i i backpacked by myself um i came over from new zealand then backpacked through europe for a couple months and i happened to get to paris right when they were having at the giant French, uh, whatever it is, they're the big, um, uh, the big cinematheque there, uh, that, um, the guy who, uh, that documentary about Lumiere, uh, was made and the name is escaping me, but he's kind of very famous part of the new wave in the sense that he showed all the great classic movies. Um, and it was just all films on Anna Karina. And I think she was going to be there. Uh, I can't, she wasn't, I, I didn't see her at the screening as that, but, um, and so, you know, I just kind of walked into this one. And so the first time I saw this film, I don't remember, don't think it had subtitles. And I didn't speak French, so I just watched it because I was like, oh, this is a great experience to have. And I, you know, still could understand everything I needed to. And then, you know, a couple of years later, I got to see it with subtitles and fill in the blank. Um, but it's such a simply told tale. But, you know, there, I, I think the thing is that there's this period of films in the, his 60s and very early 70s films, but mostly his 60s movies that are just so full of cinematic technique uh a mind like Tarantino who knows everything about movies and has seen every movie. So 
a lot of things are being referenced and coming back up through the blender of Goddard. Um, and they're just fun. They're, they're the movies that they have dance sequences where people, character just gets up and starts dancing like the, in this film. And, uh, it's so different than what I think he is kind of towards the later part of his career. He is remembered as, uh, and so, you know, even though these are the movies everyone tends to love and these films are also big influences on, you know, American cinema, you know, they ended up being a big part of why America had such a great kind of new wave, uh, of their own. So anyway, this, this is the one that means a lot to me. You know, anyone who's been into jump cut back when it was around had seen this giant poster on our wall of her against the wall and black and white with big bits of red splashes of red. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a good one. You know, I just, uh, started a list I've been working on of movies that you are a fan of that I haven't seen. And this is, mm. This is going on the list with the proposition and Killer Joe. Oh, good, good, good. That'll be stuff. a good one. That'll be a fun one for you to watch. I think you'll dig it. Saving up for that episode that we're going to do at some point. Yeah, I've got a few too. Yeah, there's a bunch. You know, a lot of '80s uh, like comedies <laughs> that have somehow slipped through my radar. That's my that's my jam area. Um, so next up for me is one from the late great Hal Ashby. Um, this is the last detail from 1973. Take your hand off that horse cock you got stashed under the bar. How do you know I don't have something with a little more bark to it? Ho, ho, ho. This redneck is talking about firearms. Well, I know that you ain't got nothing but wood under there, my man, because I happened to be in here one night when a certain sailor got it laid up the side of his fucking head. What do you think about that, redneck? Boss, well, loses License for sure if I serve that. Kid. I'm gonna kick your ass around the block for drill, man. You try it and I'll call the shore patrol. I am the motherfucking shore patrol, motherfucker. I am the motherfucking shore patrol. Now give this man a beer. I don't want a beer anyway. You're gonna have a fucking beer! Come on. Nice. Um, for those that don't know, I'm sure, again, anybody listening to this knows how Ashby has seen Harold and Maude and knows that Ashby had an incredible run in the 70s of some really remarkable films coming home, being there. Um, The Landlord, if you haven't seen that, his first movie. I think a lot of people haven't seen that one. That's great, too. But The Last Detail might be my favorite Ashby movie. I know it's kind of sacrilege. It's, it's so hard. No, he he's so hard because Harold and Maud yeah. was on my list. It's one of my all-time favorite. I like, love it most meaningful movies to me but i also know we have a question coming up from a certain uh, certain patreon we're going to be doing an episode and that's probably going to be my thesis movie that's a good one no that's a really good one i i was i've been um working out that list for the patreon um subscriber uh and um that's a really good one for that but but anyway the last detail and harold and water both great but the last detail is definitely one that's huge to me because I think it's one of the greatest mixes of comedy and drama uh, that I think I've almost ever seen, especially in terms of like raunchy. Well, not raunchy, but like you know, have you, the the just the gist of the story is that you've got it's it's about sailors, so the language in the movie is quite mm-hmm. salty to say the least, um, and was I think kind of controversial for the studio uh in 1973 i mean granted the the um production code had died years before but um as recently as you know say 1967 you're dealing with 
the code really being broken out as far as the violence in something like Bonnie and Clyde and then later in the Wild Bunch and then you've got stuff like The Graduate and things like that are starting to push the bounds but this goes one step further in that there is a whole lot of swearing in this movie I mean um, in the best way I'm you know but uh, so it's got that aspect to it but it's also and it's funny but it's also got uh, some drama to it, some some moving stuff to it. I mean, the, the basic story is that two lifer um, sailors, um, Jack Nicholson plays one of them, and I got to look up the other actor, but um, they are basically assigned to Otis Young is the other one. They are assigned to transport this younger kid sailor. Uh, to the brig for lifting like $40 from a collection box. Um, he's gotten like, I don't, I forget if it's like eight years. It's some ridiculous sentence for something so small. But the, the trick is, is that um, he happened to lift from the collection box that I think is like one of the commanding officer's wives' favorite charities. So he took a huge hit for that. And that young sailor is played by Randy Quaid. Um, so initially these two sailors are like, all right, we've got, you know, however many days we'll, we'll run his ass, uh, real quick to the brig and then we'll spend the next couple of days in our per diem just, you know, living it up. Um, so they, you know, it's, it's very much there, there's some similarities to like midnight run, which I think would be a good double with. Totally, totally, yeah. yeah. But, um, so they put him on a train and then suddenly I think they both start to have second thoughts about, this guy and that he's so young and he's going to go up for eight years. And so they decide that they want to show him a good time before he goes up. So, um, they start to, you know, go drinking and there's a really famous scene where they go to a bar and, um, Jack Nicholson has a really famous line that, uh, uh, I think we could probably include in, in the episode. Um, I'll leave to, I'll leave that to the, to him to say, but, but it's just a really moving and funny um, road movie that, and, and a movie about friendship and about, um, I don't know, just just sort of making the most of life and, and sort of taking up op- an opportunity to think about um, other people. I, I don't know. There's something about it. Um, I would say Hal Ashby, the one thing you can say about it from film to film is he's probably the least judgmental filmmaker who ever lived. Like, yeah. I think he does not judge his characters. They are completely equal in all ways. And each character gets a shot in the world of and that he creates. And I, I think that's also sounded like the guy, you know, he was, he was very famous as being one of the biggest stoners ever in Hollywood. I mean, he was always smoking, but at a time where that was like, you know, a big part of the culture, but he really embraced that, that part of it. And he was also known as like probably the best editor in all of Hollywood. So he had edited a few films before he got his first shot at directing, but everyone considered his, his mind. If you read raging bull and easy writers, I remember that the chapters on him are particularly fascinating how people viewed him as this, like the guru editor. And so it makes sense that he would then bring that art and uh, love of the characters to the movies he made. Cause they're just all so full of like heart. You know, there's really not many people like him working at that time. You know, everyone else was trying, I think, pr- to provoke with form and style in filmmaking. I don't think he, not once do you really think about the style of his movies. You're just watching the characters. Yeah. I think the ending of Harold and Maude is mm-hmm. one of the greatest 
edited sequences in all of film as far yeah. as I'm concerned. And he doesn't, it's not, it's a little flashy, but in a great way that doesn't take you out. He doesn't do quite as much with that in the last detail. It's much more nuts and bolts story. But yeah, like you say, he's, he's just got a lot of heart to him. He's for me, like, um, I don't want to say stereotypical hippie, but he has a lot of the, uh, like you say, the best parts of that sort of counterculture take, um, where it's like you say, non-judgmental, kind of trying to just put things out there. And and as far as commercial directors, I think there are a few that were as hippie-ish as he was that that had as many mainstream films. If yeah, you know, if yeah. you know what I'm saying, you know, like there's Dennis Hopper. But I don't feel like, and he's very much of a slightly similar mindset, but I don't think he had quite as many mainstream successes outside of Easy Rider. And he's a darker figure. I mean, totally. I think he's much darker and ugly. I've never seen, um, the only ones of Ashby's I have yet to see, I've, I've been waiting for the Blu-ray, which is about to come out for uh, his picture that's usually somewhat maligned, 8 Million Ways to Die, which was his last film, right? Um, is that right? I think. Um, yeah, I think so. Or maybe he might have made something at the end, but you know, just before he died. But that was like one of his last ones. It wasn't. All, it's it's one I started once on like a streaming channel, and it just didn't look good. And I was like, you know what? If this is only a so-so one, I'm gonna. You know, it sounded great to me because it's Jeff Bridges, a de- you know, detective kind of story. Uh, that one, and I've never seen the Woody Guthrie biopic yet. Oh, that's that's good. You you did. Yeah. That. No, I'm definitely going to. It's it's that's just a, sometimes I eke them out over. It's a years. Twilight time right there. Okay, a cool. good looking yeah. Blu-ray, but but yeah, uh, eight million ways to die. I like, um, but it doesn't quite have the same heart that these mm-hmm. other ones do. Um, it's definitely an interesting one. When the blue comes out, it'll be worth a look for you. But but yeah, he had a run in the '70s that rivals, you know, those the best of those filmmakers. I feel like the Scorseses, the Altmans, all those guys, and I feel like he doesn't quite get the same credit sometimes, although it feels like a lot of people are still, I know uh, Judd, Judd Apatow is really into him. I, I was listening to an old interview. I did. I just did an episode of Just the Disc recently on The Last Detail because uh, Indicator put that one out too, and I found an old clip of Judd Apatow talking about um, uh, The Last Detail. I think when he was promoting knocked up maybe mm. it was a while ago but he's a huge ashby fan i mean he named his daughter maud i mean he's it's it's a big deal to him this guy and so i like that he for some people is still really resonant um yeah i think part of it because they were quieter movies and part of it is probably because he died you know earlier than a lot of the legends a lot mm-hmm. of them are still alive i mean of course right. a lot of the people from that time period are actually most of them in fact are still around yep. the majority um so ashby was all older anyway back then than a lot of them um but yeah no i think he's an exciting person to discover because it's a very different kind of cinema that he's doing uh, i haven't ever read a book entirely on him i'll have to look up uh, a good bio but he's uh yeah very interesting i heard some fun stories uh, some guy i met through an ex-girlfriend i can't remember what it was but he had worked with him in some capacity he's like he's the kind of guy who would open his door you'd knock on his door he'd open his door his you know he'd have his long beard weed would just emanate from <laughs> His his uh you know his robe would be open he'd be completely nude and then he'd literally have there'd be two people in the back like two women like just naked in the back and he'd be wearing sunglasses he's like hey man come on in like <laughs> just totally 
was that era and i loved i love hearing those kind of stories but uh uh yeah that's that's a good one and i'm sure he's gonna come up again soon nice uh as a director uh not not on this list but uh soon as in the flow of our show uh my number three is very predictable i think a couple of mine uh yeah well definitely this one uh, anyone who's listened to other the that other show uh that i do um <laughs> will know this one because i mean it'd be very easy for me to do a horror five handshake you know uh but last in my last five i talked about possession the movie i've probably discussed more than any other but if you looked at the last three months of my life i've probably talked about this film more than any other and that is dario argento's suspiria excellent it's useless to try and explain it to you you wouldn't understand it all seems so absurd so fantastic all I can do is get away from here as soon as possible. From 77, I couldn't let that uh, off my list because I realized actually re-watching it so much lately and thinking about it so much has deepened even more my love. It's always been top five movie, uh, top five horror movie for me. It's always been in that category. But of recent years, I'd say it's like probably no, tied in number one, two kind of with possession up there now for me. Uh, you know, one of it is my love of there's no Val Luden movies on this list because I can't. I've never been able to really pick one of Valudin. I I put them all together in my mind. You know, it'd probably be Cat People, but I love them all, and they, I love so much about each one and the way they feel as a whole. And when I watch Suspiria, I really see this as his color Valudin film, and and it's it's a fairy tale like Curse of the Cat People. It's you know the color is expressionism, um, just you know, like Caligari even, and uh, but. It's it's all in this kind of vibrant, incredible color. So if you've never seen this, and I think probably everyone here uh, has seen it, it's the very simple story of an American ballet student who uh, goes to uh, Germany um, to join a dance school. But uh, what you and then it happens to be a coven of witches, and you know slowly she the dark forces are kind of um, at work on her, and she has to to battle them or be destroyed very simple stuff but it's not the story it's the way he tells the story it is this incredibly uh, violent ugly, you know vicious uh, ugly violence in beautiful settings that pulls you in and and it become the signature of what Argento does he's very the closest I've ever seen people always say De Palma is the closest to Hitchcock but I've always felt that Argento is the closest uh, and and probably just not noticed as much because the stories are uh, you know, so much more simple uh, in, in terms of falling into kind of giallo and slasher plots. But I think he, in terms of what he's doing well, when he's doing it well, I feel like it really is similar to what uh, Hitchcock was. I'd, I'd, of anything, I'd love to have known what Hitchcock would have thought if he had seen like Deep Red and Tenebrae, if he would have gone, oh, that's that's interesting. I feel like the, the perverted side of him would have thought that this, which was a big part of Hitchcock, um, would would have really been drawn to that same side of what Argento was actually putting on screen, things that Hitchcock wouldn't have been allowed to have put on screen in the kind of films he's making. But uh, Suspiria works especially well as, uh, you know, a, a dark, dark fairy tale. And it's it's just so rich. And, you know, in the last couple months, the reason that, you know, if you follow us on anything, you know, I got to, you know, host this panel, uh, moderate this panel at um, Texas Frightmare with, you know, Dar the director Argento and a couple of the actors, Udo Kier, and the one of the most incredible parts of this movie is the score by Goblin and Claudio Simonetti. And it's just and he was there, too. And it, it was like totally definitely in my top couple things I've gotten to do since being involved in uh, this kind of that part of uh, the genre and, and movies, movie culture. But uh, 
it uh you know it's given me a lot over the last 30 or 20 years since i saw it i think uh even though it's it's coming it's its 40th year and you think about a movie that was 40 years ago having the kind of crazy power it has as in terms of being able to still shock you uh and and just the way it sounds the sound continually attacks you uh as an audience so it's a totally unique film what i will say is if you haven't seen this movie don't see this movie whatever you do for the love of god wait wait it's probably only going to be till september october i'm going to guess uh i don't know that but um the blu-ray that is being made of this will probably be one of the all-time greatest looking blu-rays of any movie and i really mean that we've we got to look behind the scenes and we watched the transfer being done and it, it just unbelievable the the image quality compared to what i've seen on film prints and other places certain colors that pop that were never there before and so i think this is going to be something truly special so if you haven't seen it just hold out i think most of you have and you'll be blown away by what synapse are doing with this release and um i'm i'm gonna try to get my my panel that i hosted on it but i've heard there's a lot of problems with dvd companies trying to get panels that are shot at conventions there's a lot of ownership issues where they don't necessarily play ball together very well so that might never happen but which is a shame but it is online we can post it uh into our group or whatever but it's 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 jessica harper also we've talked about her back in our films on filmmaking episode uh in woody allen's um stardust memories and she's between this and brian de palma's phantom of paradise the evictors she's she's a screen presence that wasn't in a lot of movies uh, but what she was in, and she looks like a doll, I guess. Her, she has these huge eyes, and uh, you know, I'm sure that's why Argento cast her because she almost looks like a childlike wonder, uh, always on her face as she walks through this movie. Um, but he had seen her in De Palma's film and cast her directly from that. He thought she was perfect when he saw Phantom Paradise. So, um, yeah, this is a film that you know you can't really just spend much time on the plot, but. You just have to see a film that's that somehow is beautiful and disturbing, and it's 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 a little bit of magic. Oh yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more, and this is up there for me too. Um, I would say I feel like De Palma is a little more strictly Hitchcock, and and certainly has taken that and done his own thing. But I feel like I certainly see what you're talking about with the Hitchcock and with Argento, and I feel like Argento has taken it even a step further as far as the style. Like, his style is is more uh, adventurous and, to be honest, more interesting in some ways, uh, artistically, than than some of what... It's a little more surreal. Surreal, too. yeah. He, he takes good... it in a surreal way, which, which De Palma definitely doesn't really do. No. Um, and I feel like... I guess the thing is about Hitchcock that we'll never know is we'll never get to see what he wanted to do unrestrained you know and yeah. and towards the end obviously he was working on that crazy you know sex movie he wanted to make which probably would have been bad for him you know to at yeah. that point of his career to do but it would have been fascinating but i do know that if we could have seen a movie beamed from hitch's the dark recess of hitchcock's head i do feel like it might have shared some similarities to moments not not whole movies of Argento, that's for sure, because I don't think the stories necessarily would have grabbed Hitchcock. But I think the 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 style and sexuality and kind of blunt force trauma of certain moments, I think he would have uh, really responded to. But he might have seen a couple of them. I mean, they did overlap, uh, you know, for sure. And so it's very possible he has seen a couple of the early ones. But uh, I'd be I'd be very curious. Yeah, I think the only places he ventures into surreality for me. Well, I mean, there's probably more than these two, but Marnie and Vertigo are the big ones 
that... and then obvious ones like Spellbound, but that's that's sure. more of a, that's more of a conceit, right? Yeah, like, oh, yeah. now it's the surreal part where that he's not even not directing that yeah. sequence. It's it's uh, Dolly, yeah. Dolly doing it yeah. and everything. But yeah, I mean, but for the most part, surrealism is not really his thing, and I kind of like that Argento, you know, sort of takes that influence and and really makes it his own. And his own is this really special thing that uh, I'm so jealous of the fact that you got to meet him and do that panel. That's so great. And I'm so looking forward to that Synapse Blu-ray. Yeah, I mean, it's the first time. I can't remember the last time I got nervous to do something in my life. It's so you get used to or confident what, at what you do and you kind of settle into that. But that was uh, that was until we were rolling that thing. I was like definitely feeling it Yeah, well, because I, I, I put myself in the shoes of all the people who traveled there just for that, which I kind of was. That's why I wanted to go to Texas Frightmare besides meeting listeners and stuff. I was like, oh man, I get to, you know, the chance of that. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Here's hoping that it ends up on the Blu-ray, but at least people can check it out online if they want yeah, to. Yeah. Um, so my number three is going back to the eighties. Um, this is another movie that's very special for my wife and I, and it's Valley Girl. You live around here? Like, this is very strange. What are you doing back here? I forgot my comb. Really now? Well, to tell you the truth, I kind of thought that maybe you and I could, um... We could what? We could get out of here. <laughs> like, I don't think you'd be any more welcome down there right now. <gasps> I mean, let's leave the party. I'm so sure. <laughs> Kill. I'll meet you out front. Wait a minute. Where are we gonna go? I don't care. What are we gonna do? Anything. Mm-hmm. Um, my wife and I were both fans of this movie already, separately when we met, but it sort of took on uh, this whole new meaning when we started watching it together. Um partially because my wife is actually from the Valley. So she is a Valley girl and um, maybe not in the stereotypical sense, but that's where she grew up. And um, so what I did was we watched, we watched the movie and it meant a great deal to us. In fact, um, I think Nick Cage and Deborah Foreman are absolutely delightful in the movie. Um, and they're sort of like falling in love dating montage set to I Melt With You by Modern English is literally one of my favorite montages in all of cinema. I think it yeah, is. Yeah, I, I, I just talked to somebody a couple of days ago about that, talking about what a great montage that is. That's so funny. It's just, I mean, it has to do with that, just that song and, the, and what's going on. Rarely does it line up quite as perfectly for me as it does there. So... Where it gets even more personal for me, though, is that, uh, and I don't think I've told this story on this show, is that I thought it would be an interesting way to propose to my wife by writing my proposal on an original one sheet for Valley Girl. Oh, cool. Um, So I did that. I actually got some, like, fancy calligraphy pens, and I was, you know, practicing, you know, writing because I, I... it wasn't like a crazy expensive one sheet, but it was like, I can't fuck this up because I have to, right. <laughs> I have to actually yeah. write it on there. And so that's how I proposed to my wife was on this poster. We still have it. It's framed. It's in our house. Um, that's so, pretty wild. You yeah. can't top that. <laughs> no, I mean, so <laughs> that's like that's how personal this movie is to us. And, and, and I just thought, you know, 
what a nice way to um, sort of bring things full circle. Um, That's funny because if I ever get divorced, I'm going to write it on a possession one sheet. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I know this is a movie a lot of people have seen, but, you know, if for some reason you haven't seen Valley Girl, um, I think it's one of the most genuine performances from, from Nick Cage that is out there and it's it's early enough on in his career when he wasn't Nick Cage he wasn't you know big and over the top as he can be in a way that I think I personally and probably you too enjoy in many films this is like I said early enough that he's he's inhabiting the role um, in a way that I that I feel like really pulls me in emotionally. Whereas now I see a good Nick Cage performance that's over the top, and I it's entertaining and engaging on a certain level, but not necessarily emotionally. I um, am going to officially call it now. You patrons are going to be the first to hear this. I now decree that we shall do an all Nick Cage episode. Oh, I like it. Boom. You know I can uh, eat a peach for hours. Oh no, not the peach! That is now locked in stone, and it's going to be this season. Nice. This is this isn't the because, and the reason I'm saying that uh, for one, I will agree with you. I think this is actually him at his most vulnerable. Yes. Like so, he's allowing himself to be in the character. The character could be hurt by the girl. He could be hurt as an actor. That it's it's a great. And he this is in a period where he's also coming up to things like you know uh, Peggy Sue got married, uh, Moonstruck. I think he's great in all those movies. I mean Peggy Sue is playing like such a cartoon, but it's still a great cartoon. Uh, Moonstruck's uh, equal to this. I think Moonstruck and Valley Girl are like where he's at his most vulnerable and beautiful. And I just I think of him as our generation's best film actor. Now, is he gone crazy in most movies? Yes, but if he's with a good director, I've never I can't think of anything in the last twenty years where he's worked with a really great director and given a bad performance. When he's with the right filmmakers and people who are actually on him and helping him craft what they're doing, he's always great. It's just the times where I think he's doing just lots of movies for the money and no one's reining him in at all like the Ghost Rider movie or something where you're like oh god like what are they letting him do you know yeah. but you look at that bad lieutenant tenant too and you're like okay here's a movie where he's going off the rails like this should be not work at all but because it's Werner Herzog he is somehow getting something it's almost Kinski-esque in that sense of this crazy performance but it all works and you know and, and he could go subtle I mean he did David Gordon Green's movie and you know he, he's got just incredible talent I love I love Nick Cage and I agree with you. This is a great movie. And I this was on my list for an episode, I think two episodes in, I'll just say. Uh, and I then at the last minute traded it out for something else uh, of season two, looking into the future a little. So, <laughs> so I'm really glad. This is the first time I've actually heard you talk about this movie. So I'm really glad I didn't in a sense because I'm, I'm, I'm glad I got to hear your story behind it. Yeah, it's 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 a big deal. And it's there's a serendipity. There's that's always happening between you and I in this show. And I kind of love that to be honest. So because yeah, because that's, that's part of what people don't really, I guess people will always think, you know, you guys all knew each other because we, we knew each other, but we didn't know each other that well. We know we both like a lot of the same movies and things like that, but we don't know how or why. And so when these come up in these random ways, it's so fun to go, oh, I mean, you know, who's going to think somebody proposed using Valley Girl? I mean, that's pretty outrageous. I love it. It's yeah. great. It's, uh, it's pretty funny. Uh, um, so I'm, I'm glad that movie. Don't they eat uh, pancakes at Depars? They do. And my wife knows Depars. And my wife had been to Depars. We've been to Depars. It's it's still around. 
the yeah. best pancakes in California, in LA. If you go to LA, it's just the best. Yeah. So good. Um, well, that's funny. My next one has got a, a personal connotation. It's a negative. It's something, something that I'm very free to admit about myself now looking back. But I, and I think I've mentioned it. Let me put it this way. At one point in this list, I'm not even kidding. Uh, three of my five movies involved gambling. And I, it actually took me back for a second when I looked at this list of five, and so I kind of mixed it up. Uh, one is another Warren Oates movie that uh, you'll probably guess that will come up uh, down the road someday. I took that one out. Um, and, uh, and there, yeah, there's another one I'll, I'll mention later. Uh, you know, I actually am somebody who, like, gambled a lot. And, and I think I mentioned to you briefly about New Zealand how all the bars are connected to gambling machine so kind of everyone i know in that culture you know you would drink a lot and you know go gambling and it's it's a very negative in the long run thing and you but you don't really see it when you're in it uh so coming to america where you would think gambling's a bigger deal i i don't have that issue anymore luckily but i don't have any vices i'm not an alcoholic you know i'm not a sex addict or whatever i can honestly say when i'm stepped away from that world that i could say i probably would actually have a gambling addiction or problem if i was if I moved to Vegas, I, I would probably be doomed, like, or Reno. And I'm not just saying that. I mean, I really, and I, it's a mental, uh, it must be something to do with excitement, something in the way your brain works towards excitement and uh, chance and risk. And I'm somebody who has always liked to take risks. Uh, it's always just been built in, whether it's even just moving to a country where you don't know anyone or, you know, things like that. But um, so, uh, and I know this might seem overly personal, but I can say it because I'm not, I'm not, it's not an issue for me right now, but uh, is California split. Hi, fellas. What can I do you for? Uh, I have some uh, J&B scotch straight with some soda water on the side. We'll even have a drink at Lucy. Yeah, that's all right. That's right. some coffee. You got some coffee. Coffee's coffee. right coffee over there. William, over there you are a straight dude. Coffee, just keep it together. Don't get in the way of the concentration. Hey, sure. It's a sweet game. It is. $2,000 buy-in, right? You fellas here to uh, drink or play? Well, my partner here is the player, and uh, I guess I'm the drinker. Oh. Huey? He calls. Player. Next up. You're low. That's what I'm down. Right. Start with the, uh, the ball guy. The most dangerous player. Okay. Absolutely right. Percentage player doesn't take many chances, right? Uh, no flair. Guy, I say, is part of a two or three-man combination. No sweat, but you find him after the fourth card. You're not in the hand unless you got the nuts, That's right? Got the nuts. Right. By Robert Altman is one of my favorite movies ever, and it's up there with After Hours and Modern Romance for my favorite comedy. But it's also got this other layer to it of reality. And I think anyone, I remember reading Ebert's review, which is excellent for this movie. I think it's, I, I think, you know, there's a number of great Altman movies, but in terms of like on the emotional side of like character and, and just fun watching two characters, all the stuff he kind of does well with mash with lots of characters. I think he's pared down to like perfection in California split, but it's, uh, it's all, all set at Reno, which also has, uh, a bit of a personal thing. Uh, I mean, uh, my wife too, uh, funnily enough, but, uh, it's a, a couple down on their luck gamblers, uh, Elliot Gould, who is just one of my favorite roles ever, especially when he's got a, a busted nose and has this big uh, <laughs> bandaid across his face for most of the movie. <laughs> He's the free spirit character who's really just going from like broken, broken streak to broken streak down on his luck character. And then you've got a like slightly more together uh, George Seagal, who is an actor I've never I never thought about George Seagal because, you know, I grew up when he was on 
Just Shoot Me or something, one yep. of these TV shows. And I just thought of him, oh, he's that guy. And then I discovered this and where's Papa and suddenly realized, oh, wow, there's this totally fascinating actor under that uh, from a different period. In this, he's more put together. He has a, ma- a job at a magazine and he is not quite the wreck that Gould is. But as they kind of come together in this uh, in the wake of this like uh, poker game, uh, then they get jumped by a guy who like uh, who lost the game, and and slowly they start bonding, and they go on this crazy bender. And they're also out, you know, Gould's character is total alcoholic as well, so it makes him far more dangerous in that situation. But a lot of it's about enabling, uh, about how gambling or you know casinos, you know, always take take will end up taking, even if you're on the best streak ever. You know, it, it's it's one of the most fun and freewheeling movies i've ever seen and it's just one of those ones i hadn't seen of altman's i'd seen 80 percent of his movies by the time i finally you know found a copy of this it just kind of came across and sort and just blew me away first time so as a comedy as a great altman film uh you won't find better than this and the performance is definitely one of my favorite gold gold roles even though there's so many including other uh you know, films Altman. by Altman. Yeah, yeah Altman. It's where I think he's giving him the perfect reign, uh, like freedom to to do that kind of ramble. I feel like he would have also done great work if he had worked with Woody like a lot. Um, but who knows? Maybe not. Maybe it's too word perfect what Woody's expecting. You know. Well, he's he's very much like uh, De Niro is to Scorsese. I feel like Gould is to Altman as far as getting some of the best stuff ever out of him. In my thought. Uh, the, the screenplay of this one was written by Joseph Walsh, and, and he was an actor who had a major gambling problem, so he just thought, fuck it, I'll write about it. And so he kind of channeled it into the all the... It's just such a realistic portrait of the kind of weird characters you come in contact with in those worlds and the kind of seedy underbelly of things, and uh, it's just so good. Uh, and what's funny is last year I was watching a new movie that came out and halfway through, I was like, this is California split. Like, it literally is a remake. They haven't said that, but it is. It's called Mississippi Grind. And it had Ryan Reynolds and Ben Mendelsohn. And I actually really liked it. I thought it was actually a really cool little movie. It's nowhere near as good as California Split. But it's almost the exact same concept, just in a slightly more structured, more narrative-focused movie. Where Ben Mendelsohn's, you know, the poker kind of champ guy. And Reynolds is more the con man type. And they kind of fall together and they go on they go out gambling and, and the relationship uh, back and forth of the problems when you're on a hot streak versus when you're in the, in the, in the gutter. Uh, but man, this movie, I can't, you know, this is total handshake material and I'm surprised they left it off my first one, but no, it makes sense. You know, it's, it's, it's because I came to it a little later, uh, but it's, it's so much fun. Yeah. I, I can't tell you how much, I think we have talked about it a little bit on the show, but I can't tell you how much I love California split. I think it's, Long Goodbye and California Split, one and two, Altman for me. Um, God, it's so good. Um, yeah, and it was really hard to see for a long time because it wasn't on home video. It was never released on VHS as far as I know. So I think my um, old roommate and I found a copy off TV. We rented it maybe from Eddie Brant's or I can't remember where we got it. But and when we, when we finally saw it, we were just like, holy smokes, this is good. And there's something about gambling movies in general that, at least for me, they function almost like horror movies in that there is this level of dread and um, suspense to them that you that you're really at least for me I'm really pulled in 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 a way that 
it's just literally, literally edge of your seat stuff from, for me. I, I can't even express it. And I'm not a big gambling person. I've sort of finally gotten out of the place where I never had really an issue with it because I never had a great streak. So I was never really that tempted to, to jump in and, uh, and do it. And I remember when I was moving out to LA, um, we, my college friends and I, we went through Las Vegas as we came down and I think I ended up losing like 300 bucks. Uh, and that was like it for me. But I do remember going to Las Vegas and seeing a sign that was like, basically put up your car for money. Um, <laughs> and I was like, this is the most evil fucking town in the whole world. They yeah, want to I mean, fucking strand you here. So anyway, um, gambling movies in general, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of, but I do find that they, they hook me in this way that makes me almost uncomfortable. So I don't know, but well, and they should, I think, that's, yeah. I think that's the kind of point of it. It's like somebody is aiming for this thing that isn't really realistic to the world, like making a ton of money for nothing. Right. So what's the flip side of that? Oh, the under underworld spot underworld spiral. That's more likely also a movie that I don't know if will ever come up on the show, but a movie that in later years I've come to think is one of his absolute best films is casino by Scorsese. Mm. When I first saw it, it was it had such big shoes to fill, you know, after seeing things like, you know, Goodfellas. And stuff. But I revisited it maybe 10 years ago and it blew me away. I, I remember thinking, is this his towering like achievement, this movie? Like, it's so good. I actually really want to watch it again. But that the world portrayed at that period uh, is just is just to it's it's just scary i mean what what that's found but i'm also i, I you know uh gambling means different things so some people mean slots and in poker and some people for me I, I was just mostly like slot machines and things like that but uh so but yeah if i if i moved to uh, vegas i would you would never hear from me again it would be <laughs> my death rattle uh but this one's also set in reno nevada which is which is a really neat spot it was written to all take place in circus circus and de niro at one point was attached and there, it had a totally different cast uh might have even been a different director from memory uh when i was reading up about it but uh the yeah it, like it, it, i can't think of anywhere bleaker than circus circus i mean to me that <laughs> you want to talk about a horror movie like imagine taking your last vendor and like you're gonna go all in and circus circus where everyone's dressed like as clowns and just it's <laughs> it's very dirty and looks like shit also leaving las vegas is another movie oh that, man uh you know again again proof that nick cage is you know critically underrated even though he won an oscar for that he never has had another nomination you're like you know, you tailor a movie for a guy and that movie is so not the Nick Cage roles that people are used to seeing, you know, again, vulnerability, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. He can play that. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm with you hundred percent on casino, by the way. And that has for me, one of the great Scorsese sequences where he basically goes through all the, the jobs in a casino or the process oh, yeah. of the casino where he's like the pit boss is watching that whole sequence is one of my, that's for me like the opening of Indiana Jones and the temple of doom, which I still think is one of Spielberg's greatest sequences. That casino is that for me, as far as that sequence is one of his best. I think it's so good. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it's it actually even talking about it makes me want to watch it right now. I was just thinking the same thing. I almost want to <laughs> watch it when we get done with this. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. So good. All, all um, three hours of it. Yeah. It's, it's epic, yeah. but yeah, it's got, it's so the Pesci character and the Nero character, you, you can't oh, help yeah. but tie that to Goodfellas. And so then it becomes difficult to judge it on its own terms. But I feel like this far away from it now, if you just go back and watch it, if you haven't seen it in a while, you will be blown away. It's so goddamn good. Yeah, no, it's it's a great movie, but uh, yeah, so I'm glad I'm glad we're working in uh, some 
some Altman in here. Oh yeah. No, I actually just at the last minute replaced this next pick um, with something else, but I had an Altman in that slot and oh, nice. it'll come up later, but I'm glad you brought up the Altman again. Serendipity works out. Um, so this one to me is, is an obvious one. Um, everybody's probably seen this movie, but it's Pee Wee's big adventure from 1985. Mm-hmm. Warner brothers is proud to present the story of a guy Morning, I'm here. And his bike. James Bond kind of stuff. Together for the first time in their first big movie. I meant to do that. This one, um, I think Ed Wood is probably my favorite Tim Burton movie, but this is a really close second, and it was a big deal to me as a kid. My family, I think we taped it off TV when we were younger, and we used to just watch it over and over and quote it all the time. And my sister would do like the Pee Wee knock that he does on Francis's door. She would do that all the She still does it. Um, that like bang, bang, bang. He, there's something about that knock that just, I don't know, that's a big deal to our family. But anyway, so I love the movie, but I never had even thought about it as a favorite movie until my daughter was born and I started showing it to her. And when she was two years old, she was already responding to it. And I have one of my favorite videos of her that we have um, is her watching the dance scene to tequila and sort of dancing and running around the room. It's like literally one of my favorite things that we've ever, you know, recorded for her Um, (laughs) because she responded to it so quickly and in a way that I was more than I could have ever hoped. And suddenly we were watching it over and over again. And I was like, you know what? This is absolutely one of my favorite movies of all time. And this movie has so much about it that to me is just pitch perfect and is very much me. I mean, another big deal to my sisters and I was Pee Wee's Playhouse when we were kids and we would watch it every Saturday. And my daughter loves Pee Wee's Playhouse. Like she's been watching it as recently as like a month or so ago. And she'll just get on kicks where she'll start watching it on her own. She's seen all the Pee Wee movies. She actually loves Big Top Pee Wee uh, almost as much as uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. I can't quite go there with her, but I do like that movie too. Um, But yeah, it's just, I don't know. There's something about its mix of... um, the 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 Paul Rubin sensibility with the Tim Burton sensibility that comes together absolutely perfectly and it's such an funny and uplifting story ultimately and I mean there's not a sequence in it that I don't like there's just nothing about it that I don't like so I don't know it's it's just one that over time I've realized is an even bigger deal than I used to think about when I was a kid. There's some movies that I used to watch as a kid that I'm like, Oh, it's, it's a good movie and I've seen it a bunch, but it's slight in some way. And I understand it's slightness, but this one, I just couldn't deny, um, it's meaning to me and, and how big a deal it is. It's, uh, robbed on shockwaves in the latest episode, just recounts going to see Ed Wood and Pee Wee on a double that just played. And he said, Pee Wee just had the audience by the, you know, edge of their seats reacting to every single moment just you know uproarious laughter and he said it was a brilliant thing to see still uh i have an admission which is i'm a big i really enjoy the movie but i don't know if it was again one of these weird things about growing up in new zealand but peewee's uh playhouse did not i had never seen that until after the movies so peewee was not a character to me 
when I saw the movie. It was just, what is this? <laughs> and I remember the first time I saw it, I really didn't know how to feel about it. And then watched it over time. It was like, oh, this is funny on its own right. But I didn't know. All I knew about him was he was the character caught, you know, masturbating, you know, in the theater by the time I had heard of him or almost crazy oh, as yeah. that must be. Uh, so it's just a totally different reaction. But years later in New Zealand, I remember seeing Pee Wee's Playhouse come on once and going, what is this? It's like, <laughs> This so subversive and weird for a kids thing. So I think I had a totally different relationship to the 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 <laughs> character. Yeah, I understand. And it would be a weird thing to come to it after that controversy versus before. And I honestly can't now remember if we saw Pee Wee's Playhouse and then the movie. I felt like we saw the movie and didn't know who he was and then just kind of fell in love with that character and his laugh and we would do the laugh all the time. And then saw Pee-wee's Playhouse and it sort of cemented my love for Pee-wee as a character. And then we'd go back to the movie again and it just became this cyclical part of me. It just grew into me. Um, and it's it's still just... I can't... I, every time I watch it, and I can watch it endlessly, there's no part that I'm like, oh, this again. I get, it's just perfection as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This. It's 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 one I wish I had seen with an audience uh, the way Rob had just seen it because that'd probably be a whole different experience. But yeah, I got uh, I don't know that I've seen it with an audience. Oh did, no, wait! I think I saw it at the cemetery, uh, Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Um, this would be six, seven, eight years ago now, and that was great. That was a great experience. Um, awesome. Yeah, this is this is fun because I like how <laughs> varied our lists are between lightness and darkness. Uh. And this next one's a mixture of the two. You know, uh, the t first five movies we talked about are five of the movies in our opening episode back in the day. You know, five of the movies I probably do think about the most. Uh, but this number one is right up there. I think about this movie all the time. Had a very interesting first experience watching it. Uh, my number one is Night of the Hunter by Charles nice. Lalas. Ah, a little lad just staring at my fingers. Would you like me to tell you the little story of right hand, left hand? The story of good and evil. H-A-T-E. It was with this left hand that old brother Cain struck the blow that laid his brother low. L-O-V-E. You see these fingers, dear hearts, these fingers has veins that run straight to the soul of man. The right hand, friends, the hand of love. Now watch and I'll show you the story of life. These fingers, dear hearts, is always a warring and a tugging, one again to other. And this is a movie that when I first saw it, I was 20 years old, uh, and I was at an archival uh, screening in Pennsylvania, Bucknell. You, Buc I think it's Bucknell University. A, t a professor I'd had moved out there and started this movie theater, and he had the, the Scorsese archive, you know, that, that uh, Scorsese is always helping me, is that the UCLA archive, um, were screening a bunch of brand new prints, and I got to see Touch of Evil with Janet Lee in person. Um, that was one of them, but one of the nights was going to be a Mitchum double feature and it was uh this and um uh the jackson ear film that we both love that's almost a handshake film and the name's escaping me out of uh, the past out of the past uh and so i was so excited because i'd heard so much about night of the hunter and so i hadn't really thought heard anything about out of the past and when i left i i thought out of the past was the greatest movie i'd ever seen and i was very lukewarm on night of the hunter it, it was so not what i thought it was going to be and I was left going, left scratching my head almost like what it was. I didn't really get it. And then funnily enough, about 10 years ago or eight years ago, I showed it at uh, Columbia College in Chicago. I showed it to a, a young class of freshmen and they 
had that exact kind of perplexed, I don't know what this is kind of reaction. But uh, once you've seen it, and once you do kind of get what it is, and your expectations of, you know, a thriller, noir, a children's fable, uh, you know, a nursery rhyme, a distorted cartoon. Uh, of, I mean, because I view Robert Mitchum, in my opinion, Robert Mitchum is literally playing Wiley e. Coyote in this movie. <laughs> like he is literally the embodiment of that that cartoon character. Uh, which, if you watch it like that, you will laugh out loud because the parts where he holds up his arms and it's almost like his legs are trying to go forward like a cartoon, but his body isn't, and then he starts charging for it. it's it's comical. But this movie has it all, and and it's one of the most bafflingly like surprising and unpredictable and just odd movies that will literally take root in your mind when we talk about pure cinema i mean jesus like some of the sequences loudon creates in this you know and so charles loudon was obviously famous uh, very famous as stage and screen actor a hunchback of notre dame uh you know, married to the bride of um <laughs> the bride of frankenstein elsa lanchester uh uh, and just, you know, he, he took to this material, the David Grubb novel, he, he took to the material in a way that was very faithful, but he had to visualize it for a non-filmmaker, you know, at this point to visualize these things the way he does with this beautiful mixture of mats and, you know, uh, just incredible, uh, simple, uh, almost mythically pick painterly like sequences uh, and one of the best shot black and white films ever made uh it, it's just unbelievable that this guy made this one movie and uh, obviously the movie didn't do any business and that's why he made one movies it was almost kind of laughed at um and it has taken a long time for this to get the reputation it has but for me this is one that when i say think about it i'm almost obsessed by it like like I, you know, think about the, I look at the posters on eBay every day, <laughs> and I and I think about this movie every day, and I I, th- I think about I share lighting sequences from it every time. Any time I've ever taught a class, I've always shown the sequence where Mitchum's about to kill Shelley Winters and standing above her bed, and it's all shot for the light to look like a chapel, and she looks like she's in a coffin, even though it's just light. And it's unbelievable. The basic story for those who haven't haven't seen it yet and haven't jumped on the absolutely gorgeous Criterion Blu-ray with a great booklet and everything else uh you know this uh this religious fanatic or con man uh marries you know gullible widow which is he doesn't even know how many widows he's done this to but um this is somebody when he was in jail his cellmate had muttered something about money being hidden in and i think in the kid's toy or whatever uh and so he you know obviously kills that guy gets out of jail and uh you know goes to basically become a part of the family and to, to try to find this hidden money. So on that side, that's your kind of noir thriller storyline. You know, there's some similarities, I guess, in the Cape fear kind of world uh, that uh, Mitchum also did. But then once the kids are involved, his relationship with the kids is like this really strange, dark, you know, kids fable, but the scenes with Shelley Winters are, you know, just dark as dark as things can get uh between you know a married couple and he and you know I, you know i can't tell if he's really religious or if it's I, I would have to guess not he's probably you know just a psychopath uh but his portrayal is just so great and and towards the end of the you know later parts of the movie uh once lillian gish uh kind of takes in these kids her character is just so strong and interesting the way it kind of plays out uh, against his the uh the dp is my f- all-time favorite dp i another thing i kind of obsess over is stanley cortez uh he shot magnificent ambersons which is almost a handshake film uh, and definitely my favorite wells film 
he shot Shock Corridor, which I talked about in the last episode, uh, and Naked Kiss, and uh, something I didn't know about today, which is always the cool thing about making the show, uh, is I did not know he was the DP on um, for the first week of Chinatown. I had no idea wow. that he he was fired or or left. Basically, him and Polanski. Uh, did this, and it makes a lot of sense because the way Polanski was trying to bring this new Hollywood to a, a film noir uh, and Cortez wanted to shoot um, uh, Faye Dunaway with you know soft lighting and a long lens and Polanski was like no 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 we're going to go up close short lens right in her face right next to her nose no diffused lighting you know that that was you know and he was like no we can't do that to her she's a star that's not how you shoot stars and Polanski you know won out that argument and that's where uh, Alonso came in and shot one of the best movies you know period but just interesting because Cortez has obviously done such you know varied work you know you think about how this movie looks painterly but then shot Cardor is very rough and news really so clearly a very talented um you know, cinematographer, but he's just one of those guys. I love to look him up because he's slightly lesser known. Seems to have been in a lot more independent stuff just outside of the Hollywood mainstream back back in the day. Uh, but this movie's just so great. It's so much fun. It's so strange, uh, and you know, you just you'll you're just always thinking what what would this guy have made next after this had it been you know successful? I I can't even imagine. Yeah. No. He. He's uh, it's a sad thing that that we don't know what that would have been, you know, because it's such a unique movie. I I would say I think I had a similar reaction to you in that when I first saw it, I was like, what? And not in yeah. a way that it's like what that wasn't any good, but what in a way that's like, man, I don't know what I just watched. And I, I took a couple subsequent viewings for me to fully take in the genius of the movie. And I love your analogy of Mitchum as Wiley Coyote. I would take it one step further for me, and I would say Wiley Coyote meets like one of the Universal monsters or something. Mm-hmm. You know, just because he's got he's a little darker and a little more menacing. So he's like an evil Frankenstein or creature. From Invisible Black, Man, Invisible Man. Yeah, Invisible Man. That's there. good. Yeah, yeah. Because he's a psychopath. Sinister. By the there's end, a know? sinister element that I felt like he's more scary than Wiley Coyote, but but there's definitely something to that. But yeah, it's just one of those movies that I would say if you haven't seen it and you go to watch it, don't rely on your first impression. Give it another chance. If if for some reason it doesn't hook, connect with you right away, give it some time and come back to it because I think we both had that same you know take and it's just one that you really need to kind of, I don't know, experience and then come back to because it's just so not like almost any other film I've seen. And I know we talk about those movies a lot. But it's it's difficult to quantify, uh, but in the best possible way. Yeah, I think it was harmed by seeing it with such a strong movie that, like, out of the past, is is probably my favorite noir. And because of that, it knows it knows exactly what it is, and yeah. it goes to all those strengths. So when you're watching a movie that is not what it is, not what you think it's going to be, uh, is not it, a noir. Like, yeah, because it it's not, not like noir, it's not know? like anything else. Like I said, it's no. you know, you can't... it's a kids' film. It's literally, I would say, the closest <laughs> thing you could say is it's a kids' film. And then it's a just happens to be a very dark. And the funny thing is, I hadn't consciously done this, but when you think about it, this and Suspiria have a lot of similarities. You know, oh, wow. they're really these dark fairy tales, uh, one made with color, one made black and white that are incredible the way they use light. Um, so they have a lot of similarities, even though the stories maybe not. But 
they are meant as these like weird dark fables like a grim tale almost and uh but this one you know definitely you've all seen images from it and you know the the key some of the key moments but you know like you like you said give it another kind of uh play yeah it's great and i i've loved this bonus episode so far because almost everything on your list could be a handshake movie for me so it's almost like getting a double handshake movie list out of it for me it's like a double fisting double fisting thank (laughs) you for taking it there um so my number one is definitely a movie i think i mentioned on the show um and uh, that's The Apartment from 1960. And when I was going heavy into my auteur phase, if you will, um, if, you, if I want to get pretentious about it, when I was in college and I had seen, uh, I would take in my first film uh, th- theory class and we were watching a lot of Howard Hawks and John Ford. I started to go director heavy and then it was right around that time that I was getting into Billy Wilder and starting to, to dig into his movies and I came across the apartment. What did you do to your hair? It was making me nervous, so I chopped it off. Big mistake, huh? No, I sort of like it. <laughs> you got a lulu. Huh? Yeah, I better not get too close. I never catch colds. Really? I was reading some figures from the Sickness and Action Claims Division. Do you know that the average New Yorker between the ages of 20 and 50 has two and a half colds a year? <laughs> now, that makes me feel just terrible. Why? Well, to make the figures come out even, if I have no colds a year, some poor slob must have five colds a year. Yeah, it's me. Should have stayed in bed this morning. You should have stayed in bed last night. And it was one that I remember coming home during a college break and and telling my parents, like, we have to watch this. And I would do that periodically for the last three years of college. I would come home and bring, um, you know, various movies that I had discovered at the video store through a class. And my parents were nice enough to humor me. And I, And they can appreciate a good movie, so I think for the most part... It wasn't like they they were just um, going along with it. They ended up enjoying those movies. But I remember showing them The Apartment, and, and I think it really hit them like it hits me, which is it's a great love story, um, but it's got a lot of bite to it. It's got a lot of cynicism to it. Um, the basic idea of it is that Jack Lemmon plays this kind of schnooky guy who works at a uh, an insurance, a large insurance firm, and he's somehow gotten into this uh, role of the guy who um, the higher executives, probably about four of them, um, come to him when they want to bring a girl over t- to have some sort of extramarital activity. They use his apartment and he's allowed that to happen. Um, and so things sort of develop from there. And he has a crush on this elevator operator played by Shirley MacLaine. And that sort of ties into the whole apartment thing. Um, but it's just a really amazing love story, incredibly cleverly written. There's an ongoing joke with Jack Lemon's neighbors where they think that all the womanizing is actually him having women over to his place when in <laughs> fact it's these other people. And he's usually... Uh, and a typical night for him is like he comes home and makes a TV dinner and, and goes to bed. You know, he's far less exciting. Um, but it's it's just incredibly romantic. And it was the movie that I used to watch. And uh, at I think I mentioned this at midnight uh, on New Year's Eve because it's actually a New Year's Eve movie. Um, so it fits in that way. But I also like the idea of it being the first movie that I watched in every, any given year because I love it so much. But it's also a two-hour comedy drama movie so it's kind of hard for me to actually finish it 
anymore on New Year's Eve, but regardless, it is definitely one of my all-time favorites. It's a beautiful black-and-white CinemaScope movie, um, and Billy Wilder really uses that frame well. Um, so, I don't know. This one, I don't. if you haven't seen it, it's definitely a good starting point for Billy Wilder, but there are a lot of great starting points. You could start with Double Indemnity. You could start with Some Like It Hot. Most most probably fall into it through Sunset, I would assume. Sunset Boulevard, Boulevard. Which is just perfect movie. Absolutely. No, <laughs> I, I mean, it's the best movie about movies ever made, even though neither of us put it on our list because <laughs> it was so obvious, you know, it's like, yeah, that's, that's a, that's a near handshake for me too. You know, yeah, I could totally. swap that in for this, but I think I prefer the romantic angle that this movie has. And I, I just adore Jack Lemon. This was the movie that really made me fall for both Jack Lemon and Shirley MacLaine. And there is a really incredible sequence that revolves around a compact mirror um, sort of giving away something about a character that another character doesn't know, but it's a brilliant scene and the way that the character, not to be so vague about it, but the way the character plays the realization that comes about because of this object is heartbreaking and beautiful and one of my favorite scenes in movies. And I know I've said that twice about movies in this episode, but that's part of the reason these are handshake movies for me. These are sequences that stand out all time for me as some of my favorite stuff so you've convinced me to want to rewatch it that's when i sort of like in a film class and really liked it but then just you know moved on to other movies and i haven't thought about it in years so i, I it makes me really want to watch it again it's good stuff yeah wilder in general is just that you cannot you basically can't go wrong he's one of the smartest writers to ever write you know just period um such a such a great writer okay well that look at man there's some good stuff there uh i had an update about our original handshake episode dun 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 um <laughs> that in my research i had a funny moment uh, i think i've already told you this but when i discovered it because it blew my mind um i uh had a place in the sun obviously in my original five and if anyone watched that because of that i am very uh, happy because it's such a great movie uh i was since discovered through my research uh, when i was going to texas frightmare uh one of the panels that i was tasked with uh hosting was for my at the time it was my least favorite friday the 13th movie uh part five which somehow there was a mix-up and they asked me to host when really rob really likes the movie so i ended up having so luckily it forced me to reevaluate my feelings of the movie and watch it again and and look for the positives and i actually ended up really actually rather liking it and this is the great power of movies and having a be especially as movie lovers who can do that i think some people are so closed to how they feel about saying like ah it's just terrible you know if you open it and look at it from a different angle like oh what if i had to say this is good how would i watch this movie and then which is what i did anyway uh and and really really enjoyed doing the q a with it uh what i didn't remember which blew my mind is there's this major sequence in this movie where two of the characters are watching tv and they are watching a place in the sun in multiple scenes <laughs> and, and it fucking blew my mind because i thought to myself wow i would have seen this movie you know 15 years before i ever saw a place in the sun you know when i was a kid and not even thought about what movie they're watching but it's great because like the girl's watching it and the guy's trying to hook up with her and she's really into the movie it's just as <laughs> montgomery cliff takes shelly winters out into a rowboat and oh, they're man. going for it. and then it cuts back to it like multiple times but of course it's because 
it's made by the same company. Paramount. So, yeah, so at the end, when the title comes up, I'm like, ah, they even show the end card of the movie uh, before the characters are killed. And I was like, ah. So anyway, I thought that was really fun to see one of your all-time favorite classy movies appear in one of the, the least classy. I, I would go so far as to say Friday Five might be the least classy movie ever made. It, it is not what it's famous for. <laughs> it is a very ugly, ugly, uh, uh, you know, just one of the nastier uh, parts of that franchise, but fun. Um, I'm a fan of that one too, like I said, and now even more so that there's a place in the sun in it that kind of boosts I know, it for me. I know, it's amazing. Like, Danny Steinman, I, I love Savage Street, so I've definitely become a, a fan of his uh, you know, posthumously, uh, and there's only one thing left to do. In true pure cinema style, the '90s are burning, and you can only save one. Oh th- man! Oh Jesus! You um, save something from the '80s. What? You're gonna let them all burn? You're gonna, uh, you just don't want any movies. So no movies are important to you from the '90s. Yes, I guess, no. I guess you just don't like '90s cinema. No, I they're do. Burning. There's a fire. They're melting. Oh, there goes another take... one. I'm gonna take slacker. I'm gonna take. Slacker. Oh, you took. And the, oh, hold on. I'm just watching Pulp Fiction burn. <laughs> I'm watching Reservoir Dogs burn. Okay, good. And slacker was safe. So Richard Linklater's first movie will exist. <laughs> he will become a great filmmaker. You will never hear of Quentin Tarantino. He will. <laughs> he is still at a video store, and the reason is Brian Sauer. Well, I'm a mushroom cloud laying motherfucker, motherfucker. Every time my fingers touch brain, I'm super fly TNT. I'm the guns of the Navarone. Yep. So every time you go to Rupert Pupkin Speaks and he writes about a Tarantino film, you write back to him. You troll him and go, fuck you, man. You're the guy who fucking burned Tarantino. <laughs> uh, mine, I love being the one who asked the question because it meant I had time to think about this. Yes, thank you for that. <laughs> I did not warn you about this. I, but I, I swear, I when I wrote the question down, I instantly wrote down one word. It just came straight out, and that's Boogie Nights. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I, I think Pulp Fiction, if I thought about it, I'd probably save Pulp Fiction. When I really think about it, I'd be like, oh, shit, you got to save. But, you know, Boogie Nights to me is like just absolute master. And I, you know, Slacker is one of the most interesting debut movies by anyone ever, in my opinion. Yeah, I just that so, one has stuck with me forever. I like this game, though, be- only because it forces you to quickly <laughs> out of the ether pull something. And um, but, man, I hope I hope we never get QT on our show because that's going to be awkward. I, I doubt he's going to be a Patreon subscriber, so he'll never hear this episode. That's true. That's true. But one day, maybe, you know, down the track, the, the Patreon, maybe the people will force us to release this in the mainstream, but it's not going to be anytime soon. That's for sure. Definitely this not. is a Patreon only. And, uh, you know, that was weird for us to ask for this in the first place, just as being the kind of people we are. But we're totally embracing it because it's actually feels really exciting to have your support. And it means that we aren't paying for our just hosting fees and things like that makes it much more manageable. And so we're really happy with that. Uh, you know, if you thought this episode was a lot of fun, you know, tell those, uh, people who aren't uh, subscribers and, uh, rattle their chain a little. Yeah. I mean, like we said, this is a a more extended version of what you're probably going to get as far as bonus content. We're looking at, you know, more than an hour and a half, um, yeah, we were thinking like 20, 30 minute little things every week or uh, once we build up to that point. But initially it won't be quite that often. But but knowing us, like everything will be plus, you know, half an hour almost, it seems like, or something. Who knows? But yeah, 20, 30 minutes is what you'll probably be getting. But we wanted to kick it off with something a little bigger and nicer. And um, hopefully you you dug this, you know. Yeah, thanks, Special. And, and we will do more some where we answer questions and things like that from you guys. And uh, we want to build this into a bit of community if we can. And we'll see see how that goes. But, yeah, this has been a great – that was fun to dive back into these films that mean so much to us. It's cool. 
Yeah, get, definitely, like you said, give us your feedback on the Patreon page and let us know what you thought and what maybe some of your second handshake films are if you if you yeah for sure and keep an eye on this page you know the actual the patreon page because we'll obviously be updating things there uh we we did get somebody at the gold rush level which meant somebody you know is literally going to be sponsoring it but they also pick are picking a topic so we'll be taping that a shorter version of this kind of show of that hopefully soon uh, and uh, keep an eye on the regular uh, feed because, like I said, we will be releasing a new episode to everyone uh, before in this first part of summer while we're off. So anyway, hope you enjoyed uh, watching the entire filmography of Tarantino's 90s work <laughs> burn. Uh, you know, well, you didn't save it either, there, buddy. So um, yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> when you put it that way, <laughs> I'm just going to sit over here with uh, a big, big star. I'm, I'm looking at my big, big star, and I feel just perfectly fine. <laughs> no, I like that game, man. It's a good game. It is funny. Uh, anyway, thanks for thanks for listening, and uh, you know, leave, leave a comment if you dug it. Thank We'd you. We'd like all to s- hear your handshake vibes. Thank you all so much. Twenty dollars says you can name the seven dwarfs. <laughs> okay. I know I can name three or four of them, but now you've got to be able to seven of them. Okay, I this. got seven. Doc. That's one. Dopey. That's two. Uh, Snoopy. There is no Snoopy. There ain't no Snoopy. No, I, I, I know there's Doc, there's Dopey, there's Grumpy, there's... Uh... You don't have $20 here. Wait a second. I got $20 okay, right here. Well, come on. No... I need a little help here. What about... Here comes seven like a Gatling gun. Okay. You're seven ready? dwarfs. Okay. I'm ready. Sleepy, grumpy, Doc. That's four. That's three. Oh. I'm with you. Okay. Wait a second now. There's sleepy, grumpy, Sleep- Doc. Sleepy, grumpy, dopey. Dopey. We got do- Dumbo. There's no Dumbo. Dumbo wasn't in that cast? No, Dumbo. Oh. Gotcha. Okay. Dumbo. Dumbo flew. Well, what happened? We both lose, huh? Dumbo flew. Remember when <laughs> Dumbo flew? They set that little house on fire I on the top. I've seen an elephant walk, but I've never, never seen, seen an elephant, elephant fly. fly. Right. My God. <laughs>